And welcome back to the Fun Time Program. I am your host, John Andrew Fredrickson, here with my beautiful co-host, Vivica Volt. Hello. You're actually looking beautiful today, and I'm looking a bit of a mess, but hopefully we can we can make this work anyway. We have an awesome guest on the Zoom today, Christina Roman. She is a uh, PhD candidate at the University of Chicago, uh, studying biochemistry and molecular physics studying specifically RNA structure using x-ray crystallography and protein engineering that is that is a mouthful that is that is a bit uh, a lot to understand so we're really excited to unpack that today but we are also really excited to talk to you today Christina about your work as a student leader in uh, racial and gender equity um, on campus and inclusion so Christina Roman welcome to the fun time program thank you for coming on today how are you today hello thank you for having me don't forget the diversity John did I forget diversity? It was diversity. I've been sitting here practicing that intro. <laughs> You've just got too much going on. I, I need my second cup there of coffee. Of there, there are a lot of words in that intro. So basically, okay. you are like Daenerys Targaryen, first of her name, mother of dragons. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Christina. Too many titles. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. How, how are you feeling today on this exciting today? Today is the Tuesday, uh, the 5th of, of January, uh, and, and we're, we're in the middle of an election. Oh, my God. A very special yeah. election. We're going to find out later today if Mitch McConnell is out of work. How are you feeling about that over in Chicago? Are people excited about it over there? I think there's just a general stress. Like, you know, when there's a problem that you can't do anything about and you're just kind of sitting there like... Mm. That's, I think that's the vibe. <laughs> mm, yeah. I feel that. Yeah, we know the feeling. That's why we're like, well, let's just shoot a podcast today. Take our mind off of the stress of the election. And hopefully by the time we're done shooting this, we can check back in. No, I guess it'll still be way too early to see. Yeah. How things well, are I mean, after we finish doing this, little workout, little video games, maybe a little editing, some dinner, and then we'll know the results. You know, my favorite headline today, I don't know if you guys saw this one, but apparently uh, Trump was looking at uh, going to his resort in Scotland for uh, inauguration to kind of get away from from the sadness of, of having to watch himself be uh, removed from the presidency. And and, and the president of Scotland uh, like, told him you uh, you, it's it's coming to golf is not um, is not a allowable entry into the country right now. And since he's not the president, he can't just roll in anymore. So they're basically denying him. I thought that was the coolest headline. Oh, that's so sexy. Honestly, <laughs> like I love that other world leaders are just like, oh, you mean we don't have to tolerate you anymore? Get the fuck off our lawn. I love that. (laughs) Christina, tell us more about your work as a uh, biochemistry and molecular biophysics PhD candidate. What, what, what is, those are all, I know those words. They're words that I I, I know what they mean, but yeah, what does all that mean together? Yeah. So that's, that's the name of the PhD program. The department is biochemistry and molecular biology. Mm -hmm. Basically we just do biochemistry. Mm -hmm. Um, and what, what that is, is understanding how, uh, biomolecules operate and do the things they do using like the laws of the physical sciences to like guide our explorations. What so are biomolecules? In particular, okay. So biomolecules are like DNA, RNA, proteins, lipids, carbohydrates. These are like the, what we call macromolecules because they're polymers of small uh, biological molecules. Um, and they do all sorts of different things and basically make up the entirety of, of living things. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so cool. Wow, that is awesome. Okay, and you're studying specifically RNA structure using X-ray crystallography and protein engineering. X-ray cl- crystallography. These are some big words for me today. What is X-ray crystallography? 
Yeah. So I feel like this, this is one of those science terms that does not make it into like the public domain. Very no, often. I 100% uh, never heard this before. <laughs> yeah. So x-ray crystallography is basically taking um, a, a, a biomolecule that you want to understand the three-dimensional structure of mm-hmm. um, and forcing it to concentrate down until it grows into a crystal like rock candy. And then you shoot that crystal with x-rays. Mm-hmm. And because of the magic of physics, uh, you will get a diffraction pattern of those x-rays. And you can use math to make that diffraction pattern back into an image. Usually light will like bounce off of a thing and then you it will go into your eye and your eye will focus that light into an image. Mm-hmm. We don't have any kind of lens uh, for x-rays. And so we don't have we don't have the ability to directly just like take a picture, see what 3D structure is, right. we use math to do that. Um, but essentially it's just taking a picture of the three-dimensional structure with atomic level resolution uh, of any particular biomolecule you'd like. Wow. Uh, usually people do this on proteins, but I do it on RNA. You do it on RNA. Okay. And so so what, what are you trying to discover by taking pictures of RNA? <laughs> First of all, I just want to like yeah, so- interject and say like, just the way you describe that just sounds so cool. It sounds so complicated that you're taking a picture but then deconstructing that picture using math and rebuilding that picture using more math that's fucking insane it's amazing how advanced our science is today where it's like you know we're used to the world that we can see with our eyes and we can touch with our hands right but there's this whole world of things that's happening on on such a different scale um that you know it's very difficult for us to even comprehend what's going on there but over the years we've devised these techniques you know, incredible scientists like yourselves. I guess it would be people more in the engineering side of things, but but you need the theory. You need to be able to understand, you know, how that world is working to be able to devise tools that can be like, oh, we can turn it into a crystal. We can shoot it with x-rays. We can uh, see what happens with those x-rays and then deconstruct it and use math to turn it into an actual picture that we can see with our eyes. It's like mind explode. You know what I mean? It's it's amazing to, to see that this kind of stuff is happening. So what are you trying to, what are you trying to learn with, with uh, this kind of imaging of RNA? Yes. Yeah, so our objective is just to understand RNA structure better uh, because we, we've been doing x-ray crystallography on proteins for a very long time. And we've solved many, many, many structures of proteins. And now we have a really good understanding of how proteins fold and how proteins operate and what shapes allow them to do, like what shapes they can Uh, occupy that allow them to do biochemistry and like catalyze reactions. RNA is way behind uh, on that like level of understanding. These days, most people use computational modeling to guess at what an RNA structure is. Um, And it's not too common that people actually experimentally validate what the RNA structure is. Our lab does. And by seeing what the how the RNA folds and what shapes the RNA occupies, we can guess as to how the RNA does its biochemistry and kind of get a better understanding as to how biology uses RNA as a tool. So, for example, viruses, which we've been talking about a whole lot, often use these structured RNAs to do things. And because we don't know what those RNAs look like, it's difficult to design drugs to interfere with those functions and interfere with the viruses. Mm -hmm. We also have RNAs in our bodies called long mount coding RNAs that do a lot of important regulation stuff. And that definitely involves the RNA being structured, but we don't really know what those structures look like and how we can interact with them and like maybe mess with them uh, for like medicinal purposes or or otherwise. So yeah, it's just 
our lab is trying to gather information so we can start building a better understanding of RNA structure as a whole. Amazing. That's so cool. So, so is that considered kind of like basic science then where it's like we, we just simply need to understand these things better Very basic so science. that then people can take this information that you're putting out there and do all kinds of stuff with it once we have a better understanding of how these things are working. Yeah, that, exactly. That's amazing. So uh, lots of people do research that's like, I want to answer this particular question. I want to know why this disease works this way. I want to figure out what this mechanism is. Our lab is just very zoomed out and like, we're just going to collect information and hopefully it'll be useful to someone. Nice. So basically like you're figuring out the basics of, okay, if we know how these particular things work, we can then see how that applies out to more specific things later because you know the basic structure of things. That's amazing. Is That's so cool. is that uh, the kind of funding or the kind of research then that would be funded primarily by the National Institute of Health? Yeah. So our, our lab is funded by the NIH. Uh, we've also been funded by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute before. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we could be funded by the NSF, uh, but the NSF tends to apply to more physical sciences than the biosciences. Mm -hmm. And our research also involves like technology development, like that protein engineering half, which might eventually have like a, a like a medical application down the line. Okay. Wow. So where do you see yourself going um, with, with this specific kind of study as you complete your PhD? Um, so in, in terms of like where this research goes in the future, mm -hmm. um, our lab does this thing called uh, antibody uh, engineering. So we try to make these little antibody fragments that will bind the RNAs that we're trying to crystallize. And then that allows us to crystallize the RNAs because RNA doesn't like to crystallize, but antibodies do. Oh. Um, so as we engineer these antibodies to bind the RNA targets, we can crystallize more and more RNAs more and more quickly. Mm -hmm. um, it's possible that once we get better at making these antibody fragments, we can also put them into cells and use them to like note, like notice where RNAs are in the body or notice where um, the RNA is localizing in the cell or see when the RNA adopts a particular structure because RNAs can change their structures really easily. Um, and that's part of what makes them so difficult to work with. But yeah, it's it's there's a lot of potential directions we could take this in. We could also zone in on a particular RNA target and try and really unpack a whole like large complex of RNAs. So for example, viruses often use these things called irises, internal ribosome entry sites. Um, getting the structure of an entire one would be a pretty big deal. Um, but we tend to do uh, these structural resolution projects looking at just little parts of it uh, individually. So mm. if we can get each of the individual little parts and build it into a larger picture, that would be pretty nice. We're also wow. trying to apply this technology to cryoelectron microscopy which is a whole nother structural technique that's like taking off right now. Obviously the pandemic has uh, really brought viruses into people's forefront. You know, people are thinking about viruses now in a way that the regular public hadn't really thought of them before. You know, people would get sick, they would get the flu, whatever, but it wasn't like this huge global pandemic. And now that we've recognized kind of how susceptible humanity is to some random thing showing up in some random corner of the world and then spreading across across the world and taking down the entire world economy. You know, the, the economy as a result of this, people recognizing it's not just the life loss, but it's also, you know, the way it's affecting, um, you know, people's livelihoods. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see your work changing our ability to respond to viruses or understand viruses better? Do you, see, do you think that some of the work that you're doing with your lab to understand RNA better, um, to understand, you know, the way that it interacts with things, um, do you see your work enabling us to better uh, deal with future viruses that, that come, come out of the blue? It's possible. Uh, so one thing that our lab has been doing, as every other RNA lab has been doing, is studying COVID. Um, mm -hmm. And so 
if we can improve our uh, efficiency as to how quickly we pick an RNA target and resolve the structure, which at this point we can uh, get that down to about a month where we find an RNA target, design some constructs, crystallize it, shoot it, resolve the structure. Oh, wow. um, the faster we can do that, the faster we can respond to uh, RNA-based viral pandemics. Mm -hmm. um, not all viruses are RNA-based, but a lot of them are. Mm -hmm. um, and that would allow us to get these 3D structures of these RNA elements and then speed up that drug development process. Okay. Uh, when COVID first hit, yeah. the people the people who uh, do computational modeling of RNA structures uh, did this with the COVID genome. Mm -hmm. But because it's modeling, we don't exactly know, like, if that's completely correct, if that's what it looks like in the cell, if it's like a contextual situation where it's one shape in one situation and another shape in another situation, gotcha. it's hard to get an idea of how the like biochemical mechanism works when uh, we do it that way. But with X-ray crystallography, we can at least get one solid, it definitely looks like this at least some of the time. And <laughs> if we can lock it into this confirmation, maybe we can start like messing with the virus. Is that a necessary first step in producing um, uh, vaccines or or is that just, it would be no, something that would be all. useful no, and would help speed up the process? That's just an Yeah. Got it, gotcha. <laughs> okay. there, there are lots of different ways to do this. Another way is like, if you were to try and screen uh, for drugs that just like, change the RNA's function or just screen for drugs that change the virus's ability to replicate without knowing exactly what they're doing, um, that is also a, a very common and efficient way to start developing uh, drugs that target viruses. Our approach is to say, let's say we could just target this particular RNA and control it in a really specific way. Would would that be useful? Could that be powerful? Interesting. Interesting. That's that's phenomenal. It's, it's so exciting to hear that you know so many amazing people like yourself are working on these problems so that as we discover new worldwide problems like this pandemic, we are discovering new ways that we can respond to it more quickly and, and more efficiently, hopefully in the future. Now, if we could just figure out a way to get a vaccine to go from discovery to approval in a much faster rate, we'd be in an even better shape. But that's a totally different problem. And I, I don't know how we're going to speed that one up. Well, I mean, speeding up trials is really difficult. <laughs> right, right. Because, you know, you can't just yeah, expose you, you people. You want to let science move at science's pace. Yeah. Right. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Fair that's enough. definitely not something you want to rush. Fair enough. Yes. No, but it's still exciting to see that, you know, we're, we're constantly developing better ways to understand these things. And just understand the world around us in general. Um, I mean, just understanding how RNA works, it's not just understanding viruses, it's understanding life as we know it, because RNA exists in so many different um, organisms. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's amazing. Our RNA is currently, some people, caveat, believe to be the first, like, the, the start of life where you just had a bubble of fat and some RNAs and the RNAs were able to replicate themselves. And then from there, cells evolve. Interesting. Right? So RNA is in literally every living thing ever. And it's been used longer than proteins have. So we know that it has this massive potential to do biochemistry, but we tend to focus on proteins because that's that's the the guys that are more common. So RNA isn't just uh, existing in living things. It's something that existed before life. Yes. Gotcha. In fact, we know that uh, you like RNA can assemble in a pool of chemicals given the right amount of energy. So wow. RNA can like naturally like just appear from a chemical reaction. You get enough RNA nucleotides, they can polymerize. You get enough polymerized RNAs, you can get an RNA that does like that polymerizes RNA itself, which is called like an enzyme. And uh, yeah, it, it can just do its whole own thing. Interesting. So R RNA can be present, um, you know, on a planet, for example, without the presence of life. 
Is it something that we yeah. that is that we see commonly? Do we see it on on other planets? Is that something like if you go to Mars, are we are we seeing RNA just like chilling out there? <laughs> I don't I don't think we've looked for that yet. Okay, <laughs> we fair have enough. For it on, we have looked for it on asteroids, and I I seem to recall that we did find some like precursors of RNA on asteroids, saying that like it's not here yet. But it could be if there was enough energy to make these chemical reactions happen. So if we if we know that there's you know a planet out there with a ton of water on it, it, it I think we're probably going to expect to see stuff like RNA existing on that planet. It it depends what the the chemical composition. Right. Of, uh, also, this is astrobiology now, which I don't. Right. Know. No, I know. It's, it's <laughs> just that, that tends to be my favorite Josh area. Josh just loves like, going to space the- with every like. <laughs> Straight to space with him. <laughs> Fair yeah, enough. This, this whole this whole like theory is called the primordial soup. Theory. Right. Um, so if you wanted to look it up on Wikipedia, that is that is the word that you insert. Do you know if that's the the one that I, they did a, a study in the '60s in the lab? They they basically created prim- yes, primordial exactly soup and they the electrocuted one. it and and they think that they they were able to create. Were they actually able to create life doing that or? Or almost. Well, they couldn't. They couldn't create life, but they could create a couple important biomolecules, Got like it. RNA, Got um, it. and DNA, and that sort of stuff. And that that is the precursor to life, right? So that's why this right. theory and there are is. Other labs that like try and establish the proof that like if you just put molecules of RNA in little vesicles, that eventually you can get RNA that replicates in the vesicles that replicate um, just by themselves. That is so cool. That hasn't been been proved yet, but people are working on it. They're right. pretty sure it's going to work. Right. That's so cool. That's so cool that at some point in our not too distant future, we might be able to watch evolution happening in a Petri dish in real time. Like put a oh, time yeah. lapse camera on that shit and be like, see, we told you. Well, Here don't we is. already see? Like we, ma- we made life. <laughs> right. At the beginning of life for sure. Do right. we already see cells kind of evolving in, in a dish if, if you give them enough time? Like, I don't know what the lifetime of, of cells oh, yeah, are. For sure. You can witness evolution yeah, actually happening, like mutation. and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there are people who do these uh, studies where they'll have a, a colony of bacteria mm-hmm. um, in a fermenter where they're constantly adding new media and taking media out. And so they allow the bacteria to live for like not just days, weeks or months, but years and years and years. And they can continuously sequence the bacteria and see how the that colony of bacteria is evolving. Wow. And then they can add like selection pressures to see like right. what kind of things can we make these bacteria evolve to do. Right. Uh, but yeah, evolution is something that we can definitely like watch in a dish, at least with the power of bacteria because they divide so quickly. Right. That's amazing. That's amazing. Oh, science is so fucking cool sometimes. Like being able to break <laughs> the way that our world works down into just like the most basic elements and watching like just bacteria move around in a dish and become a bigger structure of a bacterial colony. is just so fucking cool. What's amazing to me is that this is like commonplace stuff for somebody like you who works in the fields and, you know, gets to, gets to play with these things on a daily basis. And yet when you go out and you listen to people in the regular world have conversations about like, well, evolution can't be real because, you know, monkeys can't turn into human beings. It just doesn't happen. It's like, if you're actually somebody who's exposed to what's happening with the science, it's almost like, well, duh, we can witness it in a dish. Like, like we, it doesn't take much to extrapolate <laughs> how this could happen at a larger level. Plus, you know, when you actually go and you look at like the way they've dug up bones and that kind of stuff, and they yeah. can trace how this stuff happens over millions of years. But it's 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 bizarre to me how people can go through their lives not exposed to this kind of science and just 
be totally mystified and, and something like the Bible can make more sense to them as a, as a world picture than, than the actual research being done by amazing people. So, Oh, well, I mean, like, that's just, yeah, a, I mean, the, Oh, I was just gonna say that's a, that's just explained by indoctrination. Right. I literally wasn't allowed to read science books right. that would have taught any of this. And when, uh, we had one earth science book that talked about how, uh, through evolution, um, there was different like rock formations and you have like different layers of like rock from different types of, from different eras. Uh, we literally had to skip over that. And we were told wow. that actually this is all incorrect. And the real truth is that God created the earth in seven, in six days. And on the seventh day he rested and he put everything in its place exactly how it should be. And the earth is only like 40,000 years old. And I was like, huh, okay, cool. Cause I literally yeah. was not given any other options as to what I was supposed to know. So I see how that happens. It's yeah. just, really Oh, for sure. I see how it happens. I, it's, it's just a reminder that we need to tell these stories, mm-hmm. you know, we need to, yeah, we need it's, to- it's, I think it's a matter of culture too, right? Like sure. uh, um, our nation in particular is very like uh, in love with religion and a little less in love with science. There are other countries where that's not the case at all, where Accurate. like science is just facts right that this is just how the world works provable and science isn't isn't like neat and simple and easy to understand or logical like like a simple like bible story might be right sure like science science is confusing and has like well in this case this happens but if you change this thing then this happens and it's like difficult to understand and it's it can be frustrating and feel opaque and also scientists aren't really interested in making science more understandable for the public. Yes. So yes, this is a huge that, challenge. That's a, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> that's definitely something we're trying to like bridge that gap on um, where we try to make science actually approachable for your average person. Um, because we love talking about science so much, but obviously we aren't doing the research like someone like you would be doing. So we love having someone like you come on and break down this barrier so that your research can be more approachable to the average person. Exactly. And we're still kind of at the early stages of this podcast, but the way we see this is like, you know, we're so excited to bring you on and talk about the work that you're doing now, but we're also very excited about the work you're going to be doing in the future. So the hope for us is that as you're doing new things that you're excited to talk about, shoot us an email, hop on the Zoom, and we'll talk about it on here and we'll share it with our audience. So keep that open. Heck yeah. Yeah, keep that line open. <laughs> Speaking of things you're working on, let's talk about your work in diversity, inclusion, and equity um, on campus. You just had to get that acronym in there, didn't you? Well, because it's <laughs> it's really entertaining that like <laughs> if you mix the words up a little bit, you get the die acronym. But like, try to say it not in that order. <laughs> I have to, I have to constantly be like, equity comes first. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I do, I do a lot of uh, DEI work at UChicago. I have done this sort of stuff as long as I've been here. Um, As it turns out, I'm actually a uh, black woman. Um, I'm mixed race. uh, I identify as black. I know. And, uh, Shocking. I'm absolutely stunned. How dare you drop this bomb on me in the midst of this? I'm sorry. I, I should have, I should have given warning. Um, but yeah, as 
as a as a black woman in science, uh, it became pretty clear to me when I was an undergrad that like I play by a different set of rules than mm -hmm. my uh, white male counterparts. Um, yeah. And I being uh, a passionate person that really bothered me and I had to do something about it. I was right. either going to not do science or I was going to go do science in the most like aggressive. You have to listen to me because I'm here now kind of type way. I already um, love this. Yes. <laughs> And so I came to Chicago and I was like, all right, so this is a very white school. Um, we have this diverse cohort that came in with my year. There are a bunch of people of color that came in with my year and then didn't come in in the year following. Mm. And I was trying to figure out why was our year particularly diverse and the years preceding and uh, the years after not diverse. Mm -hmm. um, what what happened that went right the first time and what went wrong every other time. Right. Um, and so me and my friends who are also people of color started like uh, talking about this and unpacking it. And uh, eventually we decided like, hey, we have a bunch of solutions to these problems because we've had these lived experiences as people of color. Mm -hmm. If we could just get the faculty to listen to our lived experiences, they can start changing how they like talk to people of color, mm -hmm. how they recruit students of color, how they train students of color, mm -hmm. and maybe make it a less like in like structurally racist environment. So less um, hostile. Yeah. Like, can we just, can we just like tone down the microaggressions just, just a bit and maybe more people will come in and stay on. Um, and so that uh, idea became this organization that uh, I created with two other people. Mm -hmm. um, the organization is called GRIT, the Graduate Recruitment Initiative Team. Uh, the co-founders of this organization with me were uh, Matt Perez and Cody Hernandez. And uh, this Graduate Recruitment Initiative Team uh, was able to change how we recruited graduate students in every individual department and also started creating a model for other universities to follow for how they could improve their racial equity at their universities. From there, I did a whole bunch of other stuff. <laughs> and uh, now I am now I currently serve as the race and pedagogy uh, working group graduate coordinator at UChicago, where I advise like university-wide people, so students, administrators, faculty, as to how they can make more racially inclusive uh, teaching methods, teaching approaches, uh, programming, that sort of stuff. Wow. So it sounds like in your day-to-day -day school life, not only are you doing all this research on basic yet oddly complicated science things, but you're also having a whole second job of fixing the campus to be more inclusive. And but not just the campus, you're, you're not talking to other yeah, universities other as well. other schools and like creating Right. But like I'm saying that it's, yeah. you're basically double majoring in this situation because you're having <laughs> like to focus so much of your time on two very specific and completely different things. Yeah. that's So that's a, a problem that like a lot of people of color in academia, not just science, get into. Yep. Uh, because a lot of us feel the way that I felt when I went into grad school, like I'm angry. I need to do something. <laughs> I need to fix this problem. Yep. And then they kind of get like sucked into like having this double job responsibility where yeah. like when you look at the research, people are like, well, you haven't really done that much research. And then you look at the extracurriculars and you're like, oh, my God, that's why you haven't done that much research. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah. Yeah. So that that like you have you have two jobs while everyone else has one phenomenon is of definitely course. part of the problem. Absolutely. And I think that that's kind of indicative of the black experience in most aspects, because as a person of color walking into a space, nine times out of 10, that space was not made for you. And yep. having to mold that space to be less hostile to you upon walking in is either some a mantle that some people are 
willing to take up or it's one of those, I either have to stomach this or leave. Right. And it's sometimes it's worth. It's just too very bad. Sometimes it's too daunting. Well, this is why it's so important to tell these stories, because uh, we're at a, a stage in this country where a lot of people in the country feel like, Racism isn't a problem anymore. It's something we fixed in the 60s. You know, uh, we have the Civil Rights Act and everything's everything's good to go. And and there's a lot of almost pushback where people in parts of the country feel like, why are you still bothering us with this issue? I'm not racist. Nobody I know is racist. Racism doesn't exist anymore. So why are people still complaining? You know what I mean? And, And it's because as you enable more people to go into all walks of life, like academia, that's just the beginning. Mm-hmm. Now you have to figure out how do you make these these areas more inclusive and more welcoming and and you know not something where people have to constantly be fighting back against stuff that people who don't have that lived experience have no way to know that that's even going on. And right. so it's so important to tell these yep. stories about people like yourself who are saying, "You know what? Here's a problem, but here's something I can do about it." And now let's look at what the cost is. Uh, to somebody like yourself, because you have to spend all this time working on something like this to to change the system so that the hope is down the road, you know, people coming in behind you have less of a problem dealing with this and can just focus on their studies like the, you know, their white male counterparts who never have to think about this whatsoever. So yeah. do you see that this is changing as a result of your work? Yeah. So I wouldn't say it was a, as a result of my work because there are like scores <laughs> of people like me doing this work right. <laughs> everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like at every level of the university too, it's it. While a lot of these initiatives are student led, they're also mm-hmm. like faculty administrators who have been fighting this fight for much longer than I've been in academia. Right. They're just really encouraged but that th- there are people coming in as from the student level who are like, "Yes, you can take this mantle up with us." Yeah, and it's also like racial equity like programming has kind of like uh, really taken off. I feel over the past couple of years mm-hmm. um yeah, as you've seen like in in the national conversation around race mm-hmm. everyone's kind of like putting their foot down now and saying like all right we need to do something right. this is ridiculous it's 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 been forever and we haven't like seen any of these changes right so academia is kind of like a microcosm of what's happening at like the national level where like students are like i'm done we need to address this mm-hmm. and administrators are like you know what we hear you let me let me just try and students are like you're not going fast enough Right. And so this there's this like back and forth of like, we'll make a thing that feels like really big change to mm-hmm. like administrators, faculty, white people who don't see the problems that we see. And to us, we're like, that was minuscule. Right. You need to do so much more. Right. So it depends who you ask if you if you're wanting to know, like, has there been change from like student leaders doing these sorts of like initiatives? Like there has definitely been change. Things right. have been improving. The departments have rewritten their like diversity statements. They've changed the criteria for graduate admissions. They've done all these things, but we're nowhere close to done. Right. So yes and no. Right. So in a perfect world with all the work that you're doing, I mean, I'm sure I probably know the answer to this question, but in a perfect world, after all this work, what is your end goal? Like what, what, would the world look like to you after all of this work that you've put in? How would you want academia to look like um, that to you would feel diverse, equitable, and inclusive? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, an uh, ideal diverse academic environment would look like you have uh, people of color in all levels of the institution. So right now we have this like 
bubble of diverse graduate students, mm -hmm. but very, very, very white faculty. And so that's, there's this huge set of programs trying to get the students to make it all the way to the faculty level. And gotcha. as we try and do that, we start seeing all these barriers that like, you know, institutional racism has put in there to keep people from doing that. Right. Um, but ideally you would have an equal level of diversity at all levels of uh, academia. So mm -hmm. from faculty all the way up to presidents and all the way down to like lab techs. Mm -hmm. um, and you would also have uh, everyone feeling like they have the same standards to meet and they have the same work to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so it wouldn't just be that black students are doing the diversity inclusion work, white students would be doing the diversity inclusion work, white mm -hmm. faculty would be doing the diversity inclusion work. Everyone would be contributing to like unpacking institutionalized racism because that's everyone's job. Right. Um, and, it's, and, it's, and it's not like institutional racism will go away like in the next 10 years. It's, it's institutional, it's built into the structure of the university. You right. have to like really dig deep and start unpacking these things. Mm -hmm. But, and another like observable trait of a like equitable and diverse institution would be everyone has like the same opportunities and you have like the same challenges to face. It's not that one student has to not only present their research, but also convince the professors they're speaking to that they're even worth listening to and that their opinions are valid. Right. Um, but everyone has that same, I trust you. You have like the the authority of a white man, the regardless of what of you doubt, look like. Right. like. Yeah. So that, that is what I think it would look like. It's just, it has to be diverse at every level. It has to be deeply diverse. Like mm -hmm. it has to have not only people of color, but like people of all genders, people of all sexualities, people of like Every level of diversity we can have, we need, and we'd mm -hmm. also need to focus on the people who've been systemically excluded uh, right. to, to make sure that diversity is evenly distributed. And everyone should just have the same challenges to face. It shouldn't be like much harder for one group of people because they look a certain way right. um, versus another. Do you think that there is possibly like required coursework that undergraduates might be able to take? Like if they were to take like an anti-racist course in undergraduate, do you think that that might help address the systemic changes if everyone coming through the university was on the same baseline so that you're not having to constantly have the people of color unpack what is and isn't racist, how microaggressions work and what have you? Do you think that that might be useful for not just obviously your university, but universities across the board? Yeah, I definitely. So I, I have two feelings about this. Okay. One, I think like required diversity training is a pretty good idea mm -hmm. or like uh, offering classes that exclusively talk about like racial dynamics and the history of racism in America to undergrads is a great idea because that's a great way to introduce people to these ideas. Mm -hmm. What would be better though, is if we taught uh, racism and how race has interacted with every aspect of academia mm -hmm. in every class. Where, oh, okay. because racism is an ocean I live in, right. why isn't it an ocean you live in? Right. right. So if if we're talking about history, we can talk about these historical events, but we can also talk about these historical events from the perspectives of people of color. Right. If we're talking about science, we can talk about how that research was done. And we can also talk about the research that was ignored because it was done by people of color. Right. Right. Like if, if we can make like talking about racism normal, mm -hmm. talking about racism, something anyone can do because we've all encountered it, it in everything we've studied. Yeah it becomes a much easier problem to tackle because it's not this like strange thing that we don't understand and we don't know how to recognize. You can be taught how to recognize racism in every field of academia mm -hmm. if we chose to. So, so how, how, would, how would that look like for a professor who maybe has no lived experience with any of this and is being told, you know, hey, this is something that we all need to get on board with. Um, every class should be thinking about this and thinking about including it in some way in their curriculum. Uh, how, do you, how do you advise professors on going about actually doing that? Yeah, so 
this this is I get hit with this question pretty often, and I think some people forget that people study race. Uh, so there there are like, <laughs> there are academics who do this just justice like all the time. Right. So professor professors can actually use their colleagues like their <laughs> colleagues' research to to educate themselves. Right. They okay. can actually read the papers like how they would if it were science. Right. <laughs> but that's enabling them to understand be- the problem better. How, uh, are there guidelines or recommendations for how to implement that knowledge into changing their curriculum so that, so that they're exposing their students to that kind of knowledge? Yeah. So like like I said, there are people who do this, right? So right. for example, the Race and Pedagogy Working Group exists to do exactly that, where we say, all right, we got all this research. We're going to boil it down for you, make it into a little memo. We can help you design the class that like you talk about like the race issues for like this quarter in. And they're also like like organizations that do this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you, you'll be able to find these people in the DEI space mm-hmm. uh, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like right. if, if you asked someone who does this work to do that, they could, it, the, the resources already exist. We mm-hmm. can either like teach you individually professor how to do this, or we can teach a whole group of you, or we can like lead a workshop for a whole bunch of students. Mm-hmm. Like the information exists. It's just a matter of like giving us the, the authority to, teach you what's going on right now. And I think right. a lot of professors are not comfortable with the idea of someone who's much younger than them, lower authority than them, sure. telling them like, you don't know what racism is and I'm about to school you. Right. Like no one, yep. no one. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, this is this is a problem of, of, of you know, any new endeavor is that, mm-hmm. you know, right now you're going to have some of that pushback just because old people tend to think they know everything and aren't as uh, open to change as, as younger people. But that's the beauty of time is that, you know, as we go forward in time, you're going to become more and more esteemed and being able to look down on other people and tell them what to do as well. So hopefully that changes as we move forward. But I'm just wondering, like from, from a practical perspective, like obviously it makes sense, you know, teaching classes about this kind of stuff, but, but what does it look like for a calculus teacher? You know, somebody who's teaching a course on calculus, how do they, how do they change that course to include some of this kind of stuff? Just like practically speaking as an example. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. 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 So that, this is, this is something that definitely comes up where like, you're talking about things like physics and calculus. And it's just like, very, like, we're just going to talk about numbers right now. Or we're just going to follow how numbers work. Right. But like racism has been a part of calculus. Like, okay. We, we know that like there are very few black mathematicians and you can spend like a class unpacking that and really like thinking about why that is right. Mm-hmm. If you happen to have like that one black student in your class and you you pause like the hardcore like like math mathematical like practices for a minute to say like hey we want you here that's going to be a really big experience for that student one right. and two Absolutely. it's going to introduce all their classmates to these these problems that they have no idea that this one student is facing right, right. and so you you don't necessarily have to be like the math of racism is, although you could, and that actually would probably be a really fun class where you'd like statistically analyze like how right. racism Yeah, works. that actually like, sounds like it, I would take that class to be honest. Like that does sound really <laughs> fascinating. But you can, I think it's worth like taking the time to just like stop the actual like precise thing that you're studying and say, let's look at the, like the bigger context of the field, right? Because there, I've been in ev- like bio classes where we take a pause and we talk about like being a researcher or like working in biology as a field. Like mm-hmm. if you're considering a career in biology, then here's what you need to know. Right. So if like in a calculus class, if they're going to pause and say, if you're considering a career in math, this is what you need to know. Then you should also be able to pause and say, the field of math has this problem. Right. 
And this is how we're trying to address it by telling the stories that have been like historically forgotten or were purposefully forgotten. So like there, we know very few like black mathematicians, like you said. So if we were to tell the story, okay, these were the people who were doing the work, but their work might have been um, overlooked until a white man came along and presented the exact same work Mm. or um, a woman was doing the work. Like if you look at someone like Ada Lovelace, her work was phenomenal, but it obviously wasn't being given the same credit, the same credentials because she was a woman at the time. And so looking back, we can say, okay, we should have been giving her so much more credit than she got in her time. And by just acknowledging that this was something that was overlooked at the time that we want to rectify it going forward, it at least sets everyone on the same page that we recognize this is a problem and we want to fix this problem. It starts with addressing that there is a problem so that everyone is on the same page that we know this is a problem that we don't want to continue allowing to persist. Mm. It's it's amazing because it it sounds like you're in the middle of creating um, these, I don't don't want to say necessarily just guidelines, but information, right? You're, you're putting out information. You're, you're making yourself available to people who want to change, who have recognized, Hey, this is a problem because you know, they're hearing nationally black lives matter was a, a big movement this year that got a lot of people thinking about, Whoa, how do we think about the, the systemic racism in our own institutions and in our own local sphere of influence? And that's great. Some people are motivated to do that. Some people are not right. Some people don't want to think about this stuff. It's distracting. It's taking away from the work that they want to do. They're only they're only interested in their cutting edge physics research that mm-hmm. they do, and they only want to deal with the students who come to them who want to talk about that. And anything else that comes to culture issues and race is just terrifying for them to even A think about. Yeah, right. What do we do with people like that? Yeah. So I, I think academia definitely uh, favors people who have that tunnel vision approach yes. to, to life. <laughs> but I think like. It, you have to, as an institution, right? So I, I think of this as on the on the level of an institution, you decide what the foundational principles of your institution are, mm-hmm. right? So at UChicago, one of our foundational inst- uh, principles is free expression, right? Mm-hmm. We're very, very into free speech. Right. And uh, that that is, the purpose of that is to facilitate like free academic discourse so people can talk about crazy ideas and then come up with crazy like discoveries and like really push the boundaries. They wanna like foster innovation by by uh, fostering free discourse. Mm-hmm. If you add anti-racism to your foundational principles of your institution, tunnel vision isn't part of your institution. Like right. everybody has to be on board with the fact that we are going to be anti-racist as a university. Mm-hmm. And that means that your field has to actively be invested in being anti-racist, which means you have to spend like at least 15 minutes of your life thinking about racism. Like, I'm sorry, it's part of the job description. And right? what can and universities like, do to enable their professors who aren't necessarily uh, as motivated to take this on of their own free will and, and accord? Uh, what can universities do to, to help people like that along and, and help get some of this teaching into their minds and hopefully even into their classrooms? Yeah, so I think this one's actually pretty simple. The universities like direct the culture of their campus by incentivizing certain kinds of research, mm-hmm. right? They incentivize certain kinds of programs. They incentivize certain kind of research by like saying, "We're going to make a grant. Uh, if you do this, we'll give you the money to do this." Mm-hmm. Or like, "We're going to make an award. If you do this, we'll give you the award and you'll be recognized." Mm-hmm. Like that—that that is the currency of academia: is awards and grants. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the university like funds 
like people who do this sort of work or rewards people who do this sort of work, then all of a sudden there's this incentive to do this sort of stuff and the culture will shift towards like what is being prioritized by the university like as a whole. Wow. Do you see this uh, happening yet? Is this something that you've been pushing in your university or in other universities? Yeah. So this, this actually is happening. It's not like, I don't think it's very visible yet because it's still happening at like the administrative presidential levels. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like, walled up in the very highest hallowed halls of academia. <laughs> but eventually, I think it's going to become more noticeable where uh, we have like provosts of diversity and inclusion, which have like grants for diversity and inclusion projects or awards for recognition of like, like good anti-racist teaching, mm -hmm. um, that sort of stuff. I know that at least that's in the works at UChicago. Mm -hmm. I've been talking to the provost of diversity and inclusion at UChicago pretty often about this sort of stuff. So I know it's happening there. And I've also heard stories from like, people who are in higher ed at other universities where that's, this sort of process is also happening. Like the concept of paying the diverse students for the DNI work that they do right. is pretty mainstream now. It, oh. it took a, like maybe three years, but it's, it's on the table. It comes up at every meeting. Perfect. Um, and like, because I mean, you guys are doing actual with, work with and stuff. you're doing work that yeah. like is improving the university. <laughs> As, right. You're, if it's if you were living in an apartment, right, if going to a university is living in an apartment, you're basically adding a new fridge to the apartment. You're changing out all the appliances to be stainless steel. You're changing the counters to be granite. Like you're improving the space for the next tenant, even if you move out. So it benefits the landlord to let you continue improving things. Well, even pay exactly. for it. Yeah. Right. No, that's that's phenomenal. Are there organizations outside of uh, the university, specific universities, that maybe review universities on this kind of thing and like put out, you know, say this, you know, we're really proud what this university is doing or for students who say that they want to go to a, a, a school that's really doing a good job with this uh where would where would a, a prospective college student look to identify which colleges or universities are are, are leading the, the field in this all right this is less of a feel-good answer i don't i don't think there is a big like universal organization that like reviews universities as to like how inclusive they are. Mm -hmm. I wish there was, Okay. Um, but I don't think that exists yet. We do have smaller like societies for particular researchers. So for example, the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos, Native Americans in Science, mm -hmm. SACNIS, um, you could use the SACNIS network to kind of connect with other people at universities. And then you yourself manually figure out what university is going to be like most inclusive and best for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are, there's other organizations like SACNIS, like SHEP is for engineers of color. Um, there's a neuroscience version. Mm -hmm. Um, so you could do it that way using mm -hmm. like the network of black and Hispanic researchers at like at universities across the country. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I don't think there's like a USA reviews of like anti-racism at universities, Th though we do talk about making something like that pretty often in these like student leadership groups. Yeah. Um, we're like, if only there was a way we could like just give the university a grade each right. year, right. how well they're doing. Because then you'd incentivize like, the university. It. You're talking about using the university to incentivize the yeah, professors. Yeah, you hold them then once you incentivize the university, yeah. Yes, that that that's fantastic. So it sounds like there's a good opportunity for that. So any students out there who are, are have a little bit of extra time on their on if their you hands, feel like doing extra work again, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like if you feel like doing a whole lot of unpaid work to build this, here is the direction you go. Or even better, if, if somebody out there is working on that, we'd love to talk to them. So so hopefully we can do our research on that and find out, you know, other 
other people who are, are working on this problem and and you know other ways that they're they're finding solutions to it because I, I think it makes sense that you need something even above the university that provides some accountability or or incentive even better you know it, it, I, I love the way you talk about incentives because it's it's less of a it's it, when you think about the carrot and the stick approach right the the more you can yep. uh, make good carrots and get everybody excited about the carrots I feel like the less you need the stick. And, and the less pushback you get, the more you use the stick, the more you end up with this, like, you know, people, you know, not like they, people don't like the stick. So, so you end up with a negative response to it. And, and I love hearing that there's ways to, you know, to, to provide incentives to make changes here that gets more people on board. I think that's so fantastic. So awesome. Yeah. There's, there are also like disincentives too. The NIH has actually really led the charge on like creating this incentive disincentive structure, mm -hmm. which is why like grit even was able to exist. Uh, because the NIH was like, all right, if you don't have enough students of color on your training grant, we're taking away your training grant. Wow. And, That's amazing. Uh, the departments were like, oh, oh shit, we've never, <laughs> we've never tried to get students of color before. What do we do? Right. And, uh, so by then they realized they had these students who were willing to do this, like, stuff for them and teach them how to do it. And they're like, okay, this is a distinct monetary benefit for us because we can't lose this training grant. We need wow. this money and keep this training grant. We need diverse students. So here we're going to help you help us get these diverse students. Do yeah. you, do you know when that you. started? Uh, I mean, grit started around 2016. So I think the training grant like diversity requirement must have happened somewhere around 2015, 2016, but I could okay. be wrong. Okay. And do you know who's, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a relatively recent thing. Do you know who's enabling that to happen? Like who, who would be responsible for, for making a change like that at, at the NIH level? Is it Congress that, that it pushes uh, for that kind of stuff? Or is it just, it happened to be that there were people no. at the NIH who recognized that this was a problem and they were like, we're going to do something about it. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was, it was definitely the, the people who like, write and review the grants and like the people who like to say we're going to make this many training grants we're going to give them to this many schools they will have this much money the people who build the grants would be the people who put in these uh these requirements i don't know what particular office or right. like position within the na does that but it would be somewhere towards the top of like grant administration that's 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 an interview we need to get we, we need to figure out who who was responsible for making that kind of change and, and talk to them and find out, you know, what led to that and, and find out how we can do more kind of stuff like that. Because that's that's so exciting to hear that, you know, because at the end of the day, funding is everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And and who, whoever holds yep. the money is able to influence, you know, not just what research gets done, but how the research is being done and, and recognizing that it's so important that we have diversity at the, 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 the student level, at the research level, at the professor level. It gives us better science. Mm -hmm. It gives us better yeah. access to uh, you know, information that can change our world in better ways. So, so it, it, is, it is better for all of us. If, if we're interested in truth-seeking at getting to the bottom of things and understanding our world better, the more eyeballs and perspectives we can have involved in uncovering that truth, the, the closer we get to the truth. So it's amazing to hear that you know, at the NIH that, that kind of um, uh, you know, uh, push is already happening. But the question is, you know, how can we get more of that happening? So we're going to have to find that, that person and, and get that interview for sure. <laughs> My favorite part about like that that topic is like if you have more diverse people, you're going to just have better research. Mm -hmm. Is that's already been proven? Yeah, right. There, there have been studies where they make teams that are like racially monolithic, gender like monogendered, and then teams that are like diverse with like lots of pe people of different races, people of different ethnicities, people of different like uh, genders, mm -hmm. and the, the diverse teams just do better at problem solving as a whole. Like this is just a thing we know. Uh, um, I am so, going to yeah. absolutely need to see that, that study. That is phenomenal. That's amazing. Cause I mean, it makes sense, but like 
science isn't just about saying things make it's, sense. It's, it's nice about to proving. Actually, it. have the data. Yeah, <laughs> you know, okay. it's always great when you can look at the data and go, "Well, this indisputable fact that we have tested over and over that has been peer reviewed uh, that we know for a fact works." Let's, you know, maybe invest in that since it clearly works. That's going to be another good interview. I want to interview the people who did that study. That's awesome. That's so cool. So where do you see this uh, kind of training going? Do you see it being built as like a bigger curriculum overall as a whole? Do you see it becoming like a standardized uh, curriculum or uh, just like a standard that universities across the country and potentially across the globe kind of adhere to? Or do you think that this is like, where do you see this having a cap? I'm, I'm not sure what direction this, this will take ultimately, like on the national scale. Um, so one example of like how this happens is uh, while I was in grad school, somewhere around like 2017 or so, um, big Ivy League universities stopped requiring the GRE. There were like a bunch of studies that were showing that the GRE was like just inherently racist. It was biased towards like affluent white students. And just, just if you were black, you were just statistically less likely to do well in the GRE, even though that didn't reflect your ability to do well in graduate programs. Hmm. Um, so universities were like, you know what? The GRE tells us nothing besides giving us a reason to exclude black students. So we're not going to require it anymore. Um, you can apply to grad school. You don't need to take a GRE. We're just going to look at like your research experience and your recommendation letters that happened at like the big Ivy league schools first. And that kind of like set off a wave because all these schools compete with each other for the same pool of students. Right. And so like, if one school doesn't require the GRE, a bunch of diverse students will apply there and not here. So we have to get rid of our GRE requirement. Mm. That's usually how these kinds of like changes happen. Yep. So if, a if a school like institutes this big diversity training program, and it's very successful and they get a bunch of more diverse students, everyone else is just going to fall in line and follow that example because they're like, well, it worked for them and we don't want to be left behind and be like that one racist school that didn't do that. Right. right. Um, so it's, it's kind of like keeping up with the Joneses is what's going to force these changes to happen. And it just depends like what each individual institution manages to come up with mm -hmm. and what's going to work and then who's going to be the leader for the next like diversity innovation. That's amazing. So it's hard to guess which one is actually going to like happen and stick. So, I mean, uh, it, it, but it's it, possible that someone would make like a program like that. But that's great to hear that at the very least, it, it sounds like there is um, incentive for these universities to be coming up with new ideas for making their 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 schools uh, more diverse. And, and therefore they can, you know, compete with each other in that capacity to, you know, enable more new ideas to come through. Um, how do you see yourself? Stay, do you see yourself staying involved in this work uh, when you're done uh, with, you know, kind of your student? portion of your career as, as you move on to, you know, being a postdoc and, and, you know, whatever you do after that, uh, is, is this something that, that you can see yourself still staying involved with, or are you kind of excited for the day where you don't have to worry about it anymore? You can just focus on your research. <laughs> How do you feel about it? I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that my career is going to lean more towards the diversity and inclusion stuff than the science stuff. Okay. Um, I've actually recently been getting into science policy, which mm -hmm. is like, like how you're talking about the people at the NIH who decide who gets what right. that's, that's science policy. Nice. Um, so, right. So I've been, I've been moving more into that because what I would like to do is like, since I've been like working from the bottom up at U Chicago, trying to like do DNI work, it'd be nice to work from the top down. Uh, yeah. So I would like to, I, I would like to my try language and apply here. all these, <laughs> I, I would like to try to apply all these things that I've learned about working with faculty, training students, 
like being anti-racist to like a larger scale. That's actually been my goal from the jump. Um, initially, I planned to like become a faculty so I could be a dean so that I could like have all this authority over like the culture of a university. Right. And I realized the better way to do that is just go to the people who write the grants. Nice. Um, so... <laughs> So yeah, I, I, I'm going to probably be doing this uh, diversity and inclusion work for the foreseeable future in mm -hmm. some in some form. It might not be like obvious that like the the science policy work that I'm doing uh, like affects issues around racism and gender, but racism and gender intersect with everything. Literally, yeah. So so regardless of what I'm doing, I'm going to be doing this work in some capacity. That <laughs> is amazing. Well, we it. are so excited to follow along. And we hope that as you as you come up with new ideas for, you know, solving these problems or take on new roles and new positions, you will come back and talk to us about them because this topic is so important, so near and dear to our heart because we talk about these issues, you know, kind of at a, at a larger societal level or the way they impact our lives from Personally, our own lived yeah. experience. But it is so important to tell these stories about how they impact different people's lives in so many different ways. So we we really look forward to, to watching your career unfold and and watch the work that you continue to do. And please, please come back and, and tell us about it as 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 things materialize. So my yeah, question sure. is, obviously, you've been doing a ton of work in diversity and inclusion. If you like when you're starting um, your approach and talking to professors and talking to different people about this, do you have any like go to resources that you're just Ooh. like, OK, if you're going to start this work, we really want you to like read this article, read this book, watch this video here, are, like a list of resources that like we like are the baseline, like get through here and now we can like go from there. Give us your pitch to the new professor <laughs> who wants to learn more. <laughs> yeah. So in, in terms of a list of resources, mm -hmm. when like this, when this past summer happened and there was like that big wave of civil unrest, right. uh, students in my university and at universities across the country all got together and started making these big Google docs mm -hmm. of like resources for people who want to learn what anti-racism is right now. Yes. And so like, it's, it's not that I have like a couple set of like, read this paper, like read this book, watch this YouTube video. It's that like all of us do. Yes. Uh, so trust me when these, I say I have things, that these things. Google doc, like yeah. I have a completely separate Google doc on my phone that I've created where it's just like, ah, oh, I've come across far too many like articles on racism, books on racism. I get asked this question far too often that mm. it's like, all right, I'm just going to keep this list for the next person that asks me because they will. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think in academia, people act like we don't know how to address this. There's no information about this. There's tons of information about mm -hmm. this. There's tons of studies about this. We've, we've like, uh, put them all into nice convenient Google Docs with like introductions and like <laughs> indexes if you would like to get in, get into this sort of information. Um, so yeah, th this stuff definitely does exist. Um, I have a version, but mine is not like the definitive version. Right. So I want I want to just put it out there. Like if you look for it, you will find it. Like there, the, like professors who do want to start like engaging with uh, topics of like discrimination and institutionalized racism, mm -hmm. I highly, highly encourage they do so. Usually what professors do is they like find that one person of color that they know of in the department. They're like, tell yep. me what racism is. Yes. It's much better. Just give it a Google. Give yep. it a Google. Uh, see, see if you can find some forums. See if you can like hop onto some like ResearchGate articles mm -hmm. or like wherever, wherever your scientific society is. There are people who already have this stuff waiting and ready for you. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like we need a website. 
you know, that we can just send people to that has this, this information as like a starting point, because obviously it's, it's great if you can identify somebody in your uh, local community that Mm -hmm. has this ready for you, but we also don't want to necessarily put that um, onus on every, you know, person of of color in in an institution to be like, I have to, you know, be ready for this because I'm going to have to be the one who teaches everybody around me what this, you know, how this stuff works. It it would would be nice if we could just kind of point people to a website and be like, this is your starter point. Yes. Still try to find people in your local community that can help you with it. And so you can get their, you know, perspective, but at least here's a starting point that they can get you off the ground. That would, that would be really valuable. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's basically, sorry, that's basically the function of like the diversity provost, right? mm -hmm. Like they're, they, they are now that central mm, like point of like, it. all right, you don't know what you're doing? Go to their website, right? right. Like there's... Yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, usually when people ask me that question, usually I recommend How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Um, that's usually like my baseline go-to and um, White Fragility by uh, Dr. Robin D'Angelo. And I think it's interesting because like those are really great places to start. And one of my friends actually recommended a workbook called White Supremacy and Me that apparently is like... Ooh. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> This is actually one of my white women friends. She is in an account of an anti-racist accountability group and her anti-racist accountability group. Basically, um, they are going through this workbook, this uh, white fragility in me workbook. And as they go through each chapter, it's breaking down all the different ways that white supremacy has directly affected them in their everyday life without them actually realizing it or how they have uh, contributed to it in some capacity in their everyday life without realizing it. And I think that's always like, I think it's really interesting to have like a book where you're, it's not just like, oh, I'm reading through like someone else's writings where you're actually like answering questions and like giving like your multiple choice and seeing like how your life has actually directly been impacted by white supremacy and how you've been benefiting from it and how you may have been uh, reinforcing or uh, contributing to it inadvertently throughout your life. Um, so I'm always really interested in getting those resources to people. That's I love awesome. the idea of a workbook. Like let's, let's, let's work through your internalized racism. Let's just unpack it together. Yeah, no, that, that sounds really powerful actually. And, and, and I love thinking about ways that, you know, we can have like concrete things that people can do. It's not just because it, it can be a little much when you, you say, well, just go read these books, you know, and how many books do people read a year, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so it's like people might buy the book and they might leave through it, but are they spending enough time with it? It's like when you give people really concrete things that they can do that, that are maybe um, yep. not quite as much of an undertaking, I think that we can, we can get more, more stuff happening. Right. And I think that's uh, one of the things that like me personally is my goal with the podcast is to try to have um, easily digestible information that like someone can listen to in an hour and come out of it with more of a nuanced understanding of a different perspective of the world Mm. Um, and hope that like even if they don't fully understand what it's like to live life as a woman of color, they can understand our perspective a little bit better and see from the other side a little bit clearer and have be able to have more empathy because of it. Yeah. How, how important is empathy in, in this, in, in this journey for you? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so when I first started getting, when I first started doing this stuff, I thought like the, the way that we were going to get the ball rolling on getting like faculty on board with like 
being more inclusive and more willing to work with diverse students was to build empathy in them. I thought if I am able to show faculty these stories of the experiences of people of color in research and they can see like, wow, this problem happens over and over again um, to all sorts of different students. And if this was happening to me, I would be upset. I should do something about this because this just isn't fair. Um, building that empathy in faculty was my goal initially. Um, and it's still a really important part of doing this work. Um, but now I'm kind of focusing on like just making institutional policies that kind mm -hmm. of like make people have to do that on their own. Like you have to now go out and look for the experiences of students of color. You have to mm -hmm. go out and try and understand this problem because now it's your problem. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I love that. So basically you're taking Kendi's approach where you're uh, eliminating racist laws and racist rules and changing them to be more inclusive. And that creates an inclusive environment, which creates inclusive people. So it eliminates yeah, the personal responsibility or the moral uh, weight of it. Right. Because a lot of people think racism is like one white person just out there being racist, like just <laughs> running around saying the N-word. Right. And it's not. It's It's like... <laughs> how the institution has been built to to systematically exclude people of color without anyone noticing that that's happening. Right. Right. So I think if we're going to like deconstruct structural racism, we need structural solutions. Mm -hmm. um, so while building empathy in professors is super important for creating like a good training environment and a good like working environment, a good culture mm -hmm. in a department, getting in an entire academic institution to be anti-racist involves making new rules, taking out old rules and like changing the structure of the institution. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, the, the be most beautiful thing about all of this is that as as we make these structural changes and we make it uh, make these um, you know institutions more uh, accessible for people of color and and make them more welcoming and, and 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 a better place for them, you end up with more people of color, hopefully, in these institutions being able to inf continue to influence and continue to be able to give somebody an avenue for. Uh, hearing uh, a different person's life experience. Because if you just simply don't come across people that are different from you, you just don't have that opportunity. A friend of mine uh, uh, constantly reminds me of this. He grew up in Nebraska. And, uh, you know, here living in New York City, we have the opportunity to uh, to get to know people who have different life experiences than us. Mm -hmm. And it enables us to be more empathetic towards their life experience. When you take what you've learned here in New York back to Nebraska, it can be very difficult to translate your understanding to somebody who simply doesn't have the right life experience and hasn't talked to or doesn't have shared life experience with people of different perspectives. And it's almost like they're on a different planet. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it makes it so difficult to have these conversations with people who don't have that life experience. So the the beautiful thing that, that I see happening here, at least in these academic institutions, is that as you make the institutions better, you enable more people with different life experiences to come into them and to continue that snowball effect happening. You can't necessarily make it happen in rural Nebraska because you're not just going to like move out, have a bunch of people move out there and be like, we're here to like, sh you know, show you our different life experience, you know, just inject that, black people into rural <laughs> right. That, that <laughs> geographic divide is going to continue to be a problem for, for changing uh, perspectives uh, nationally, but at least in, in the academic institutions, I, I see uh, progress being made in, in a good way. That's going to enable more progress to happen, which is a wonderful thing to yep. witness. I also think that if we can, uh, affect change in academia, we could also affect uh, systemic change on a wider scale in other areas as well, because academia is so staunch and rigid and set in its ways that if we can affect uh, major sweeping changes in academia to the point where it's 
structurally different from how it was, say, 50 years ago, I think that that is something that we could take to other aspects of life, like the finance world or like the uh, entertainment industry, the service industry, and say, okay, so we were able to fix academia on this kind of a wide scale. We can apply those principles of how we were able to do this to this new facet and do this top-down like it worked here. Why can't that work for us? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think it's, it also, it also goes the other way too. Like a lot of uh, the programs that I'm in try and use diversity programming from companies and from industry, because like maybe some, some companies in industry are farther ahead than we are. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like a, sure. an exchange of like ideas and like technologies and methodologies. That's amazing. Yeah. Love it. Well, we know how busy you are. <laughs> this and has been a fantastic conversation. I obviously love talking about stuff like this. This is amazing. We can't thank you enough for taking the time to come and talk to us about this. And uh, yeah, where can people find you online if they want to get get to know more about your work specifically? Yeah, I mean, I can direct them to uh, my my LinkedIn and okay. uh, my Twitter. Though I don't I don't use Twitter very much at the moment. I I'm going to have to uh, <laughs> soon. Um, but my let me. Pull this up. My Twitter is crfabengineer. Crfabengineer. Um, Love it. Is LinkedIn a big thing for uh, people still still in school, or or is that something that you only kind of start to think about towards the end? Uh, I think I think people in school use LinkedIn pretty often. Really? Um, science Twitter has become a whole a whole thing. Yeah. Uh, that that ne- that needs to be engaged in by by this individual. Yeah, we, we love science Twitter. We learn so much from science Twitter. We get access to the actual people doing the science. It's it's amazing that that, that platform exists. John has a lot of fun in science Twitter. I do. <laughs> I, I will email you the links to my Twitter and my LinkedIn later. Perfect. We uh, will but, put all of those yeah. in the show links just in case anyone wants to learn more about what you're doing, where you're going, and check on you later. And of course, all those resources that we've been mentioning throughout the podcast. Of course. Everything will be in the show notes uh, so that people can can use this as a jumping off point to learning more uh, about how to how, how to approach these these topics themselves. Heck yeah. Awesome. This well, was really fun. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Christina. Oh and good luck with, with the rest of your work. And, and fingers crossed for the election tonight. Hopefully by the time this is published, <laughs> we'll know the results. <laughs> awesome. Thanks again, Christina. Have a wonderful rest of your Thanks. day. Bye. Yeah, you too. Ciao. Bye-bye. Thanks for checking out this clip from our show. To watch more clips or full episodes, click on our profile below. If you want to stay up to date on all of our new episodes and videos, click subscribe. And if you have any ideas for future guests or topics that you would like to see us cover on the show, leave us a message in the comments or connect with us on any of our social media channels at Funtime Program or on our website at FuntimeProgram.com. We'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.